Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. Good to be with you again. God bless you this morning. I am so thankful for this church. I'm thankful for a church that puts together a great pantry on Saturday mornings and feeds hundreds of people uh, every month. Thank you. We we do that uh, second and fourth uh, Thursdays of the month. Uh, Pay attention, though. Thanksgiving weekend, not going to have the pantry. Christmas week, not going to have the pantry. So pay attention. We'll keep updating you on on when we have it, when we break, uh, because our food supplier takes a break. Uh, but thank you for those who helped make that happen. Also, thank you to all those who helped make our big Halloween party that's coming up happen. All those of you who have already volunteered, already brought piles and piles of candy. I promise I'm not eating it. Uh, thanks for all of you who have taken the cards and given them out to friends and neighbors and uh, strangers. Thank you for all the invitations that you're doing. I love that we are an inviting church and that we really just want people to experience what it's like to be part of our community. I know some people out there have only watched online so far. I, I remember going through the, the line at the grocery store and the cashier said, oh, hi, Pastor Jim. And I had this sort of mortifying moment where I looked at this person and I thought, I have no idea who this is. And I said, um, sorry, what's your name? And she goes, oh, we've never met before. I just watch you online. And so, um, so I realize there's some people out there in a well, cyber world somewhere who have only watched online and that's great. Uh, we welcome you to do that. We'd also love to meet you in person because we love being together down here. So come check out our Halloween party. Bring a friend, bring a kid. Uh, it's a free dinner. It's lots of fun. And, uh, and we'd love to, love to be community and family together. All right. So um, we're going to dive now into a brand new teaching series that I have been looking forward to for a long, long time. Uh, Here at Real Life Church, we're diving into a study of the gospel of Luke and the life of Jesus, because Luke had a unique discovery of Jesus. And and as I get into Luke's story, what I think Luke's personal story was, I realized he probably had a rediscovery of God and was surprised that he had been pleasantly wrong about who God was. Uh, And I'll tell you what I mean. Um, If you have ever had hotel coffee, especially if that's your first experience of coffee. If your first experience of coffee is hotel coffee, you may think that coffee is terrible. You may have tried coffee and thought, I will never have coffee again. It is so bad. But if your first experience of coffee is is Namba Coffee over in Laverne, Namba Cafe, Namba Coffee Company on D Street. If that's your first taste of coffee, you might think, coffee is incredible. I could drink this every day. Some of us do. You, uh, you could drink that every day, and it's, and it's phenomenal. It's great. And you realize you, pleasantly that you had it wrong. You realize you misunderstood what coffee was. Now, I, this is my bias. I roast my own coffee. So when I go to any cafe, I'm just absolutely insufferable with my critiques of the coffee. But you might realize all of a sudden that coffee is a, is a good thing and not a, not a terrible thing, and you, you, you had it pleasantly wrong. You, your first taste was not the real thing. Same thing can happen with chocolate. Right around Halloween, you get these little uh, supposedly chocolate balls wrapped in orange tin foil, and you open that thing up, and what you are eating there should not even be called chocolate. It's not even like a distant cousin of chocolate. It's like apples and oranges to chocolate. 
Uh, and, and you taste that, and if that's the first taste of chocolate you have, you might think, chocolate's not very good. Now, I know kids like it anyway, but as an adult, if you taste that, you're like, oh, it's, just, it's just not, it's not, I, it's not my thing. But if you then go and you buy Moser Roth dark chocolate, which they sell at Aldi, the 70% cacao, it can't be more than that, it can't be less than that, 70% cacao, uh, Moser Roth, it's from Belgium, and it's just $2 for this giant bar. It's really worth it in case you're shopping at Aldi and you remember a friend. Um, if you try that, you're like, oh my goodness, chocolate is amazing. I thought it was terrible because my first taste of it was, it was pleasantly wrong. And now that I've had the real thing, I know how good it is. You understand? You, you, could, you can get a bad first taste of something and not realize what the real thing is like. For some of us, that's what happened with Jesus. For some of us, our first experience of Jesus was a version that we were presented that was an angry, politicized, judgmental version that turned us off. And we thought, if that's who Jesus is, I don't want any part of it. We look at Christians posting hateful rants online and claiming to be followers of the one who said, love your enemies. And we think, well, if that's, if that's the real thing, if that's what it's like, I don't want any part of that. But we can come to a moment where we are pleasantly surprised, where we are surprised that we were pleasantly wrong because the first taste we got was not the real thing. And when you discover the real thing, you realize how good it is. When you discover the God who absolutely recklessly loves you and who wants to empower you and teach you to go out and love other people in his name and through that love change the world, you realize the real thing is so much better than the first taste. I think that's what happened to Luke. As we get into Luke's story, as we look at who he is and where he came from, I think we'll realize his first taste of God was probably not all that good. But as he set out to find out who Jesus was, he found the real thing. I love talking to people who have never heard of Jesus before. And you may not know that experience, but I know a lot of people who grew up in different countries and different cultures where Christianity was not a thing. The Christian population is less than 5% of the population, and they really just haven't heard anything about Jesus. And I love talking to them about Jesus because I get to give them the best coffee up front. I get to give them the best chocolate up front. They don't know hotel coffee Jesus. All they know is, is the real thing, and they love it. When you present Jesus as he really is to somebody who's never heard of him before, it's hard to resist him. When I talk to people about Jesus, I get to give them the gourmet version, the real version up front, and they never have to taste hotel coffee Jesus. If they ever do taste hotel coffee Jesus, they go, oh gosh, that's not the real thing. I've had the real thing and that's not it. Luke found the real God. And in Jesus, he finds a God that he cannot resist. I think you will too as we dive into our studies of Luke. Maybe you'll discover the real Jesus for the first time. Maybe you'll give away everything you have to follow him. Let's find out. Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. And I thank you that no matter what experiences we have had, no matter what God has been presented to us, in, in you we find the real God. And in you we find God's love and God's grace and God's 
joy. We find God's calling for our lives that is so much more beautiful than what we would have done with our lives on our own. So I ask that you'd make yourself real today and in this series, that for those who have been exposed to a false and wrong version of you, they would now discover a real and living version of you. Jesus, may your love be made known. Come Holy Spirit and show us who Jesus is. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. We're going to start out by reading in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to start right at the beginning. At Luke chapter 1, verse 1. So grab your Bibles, turn them on, open them up, do whatever it is you do with your Bibles. And we're going to start at Luke 1, 1 and follow along in his story. Listen to God's word. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So, there are written versions of the life of Jesus already in circulation that Luke knows about. Just as they were handed down to us by those from, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. We're going to find out Luke was not one of the original 12 disciples. Luke was a traveling companion of people like the Apostle Paul. Luke met the apostles, and he talked to them, and, and apparently interviewed them, and researched and found out who Jesus was. He's talked to the eyewitnesses. With this in mind, he's actually kind of like you and I, right? We're taking the word of the eyewitnesses, and we can pour research into finding out whether their stories are credible. That's what Luke has done. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This is to whom he's writing. We don't know anything about Theophilus. We don't know who he is. We just know that this is to whom the letter was addressed. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Theophilus apparently has heard about Jesus and Luke is saying, I want to reassure you, I've done the homework. I know who he is. Now, this is a power-packed opening to the gospel, because Luke tells us all kinds of things about himself in this little introduction. One, he's obviously educated. Remember, this is an illiterate, peasant, farming, agrarian kind of world. People can't just pick up pen and paper wherever they go. Most people can't read. Most people can't write. And so the fact that Luke knows how to do research from multiple sources and put it together into an orderly written account means he is an educated individual. We'll see in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, that Luke was a doctor. So Luke is not only educated, he's educated to the degree that he's in a, a valuable caregiving profession that is respected. We find out in uh, later on, uh, Luke will write his gospel, his story of Jesus, and then he writes the book of Acts, which is the story of the early Christians. After Jesus dies and rises from the dead, uh, Acts starts with Jesus ascending into heaven and then the story of the early church. And Luke wrote both of those. And those two things together make up about 20% of the New Testament. He wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. And, uh, and we see in his writings that he traveled along with the apostle Paul. So he had abundant opportunity to research the stories of Jesus by watching what Paul did, working miracles, healing the sick, and preaching the gospel, and then meeting the other apostles along with Paul. Uh, in, in Acts, you'll see passages that switch from I to we, and that's where Luke is talking about uh, his interactions with Paul. And he quotes in these letters from uh, 
trials that he's witnessed, or that he, uh, not that he's witnessed, that he's heard about. Uh, he uh, quotes from uh, letters and songs and poems. He quotes from the famous Greek poetry. He is a well-read, well-researched guy with a critical mind. You get the sense that he doesn't take anything at face value, that he really wants to know who Jesus was. And he wants to know it for himself, not just on someone else's word. Most likely, Luke's biggest challenge in his, in his research, his biggest challenges were two. One, as an educated, literate, thoughtful person, he was probably also wealthy. And when he comes up against the teachings of Jesus, he probably found real challenge in the personal teachings of Jesus to not love money, but instead to care for those in most need and to surrender clinging to the things of this world in order to cling to the kingdom of God. Most likely, that was a deep personal challenge for him. And secondly, most likely, Luke's early encounters with God were of the pharisaical kind of the legalistic, judgmental, self-righteous kind because that predominated in a significant part of Jewish society. So most likely, Luke's first taste of God was hotel coffee God, a God who is angry and mean-spirited, a God of whom you should be afraid. And most likely, in Jesus, Luke found the real thing. So you get the sense from the very beginning, Luke is excited to tell us who Jesus was. And I suspect it's because Jesus upended the impression that Luke had had of who God was uh, previous to that. Uh, there are some distinctives of Luke's gospel that we'll get into as the story goes on. Uh, remember, there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is very different than the other three. The other three are very similar. And so they're called the synoptic gospels, which just means looks the same. So Luke is one of them. He looks a lot like the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, but Luke has some distinctives that are particular to him. You'll see as this goes on. He's the one who tells us the story of the prodigal son, perhaps the most famous and most important of Jesus' parables. He's the one who tells us of the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, such a famous parable that we now have what we call Good Samaritan laws in our country. Um, he's the one who tells us a good chunk of the Christmas story, and we're going to read that part of Luke as we get closer to December. Uh, a lot of Luke's teachings, a lot of what he captures of Jesus, are geared towards addressing the, the disparity between the wealthy and the poor and Jesus' heart for those who are in the most need. Uh, we'll see all that uh, as we dive into Luke. Now skip over to Luke chapter 4. As I say, we're going to go back to the Christmas story. We're going to go back to the early narratives. I want to pick up with Jesus' first sermon as he began his public ministry. So Jesus is born, grows up. There's one uh, snapshot of him as a preteen. He is baptized and tempted by Satan in the wilderness. That's all act one, and we're going to go back to that. I want to start at the opening curtain of act two, where Jesus steps on the public scene for the first time and preaches his first sermon. And you need to remember, Luke is telling us something important about putting this first, because the Gospels are not chronological. They're not written in the order of events that actually happened. John's gospel begins with Jesus turning water into wine because John wants to say, uh, my Messiah is the one who initiated happy hour. My Messiah was the one who came to bring joy. Right? So he starts with the wedding at Cana. Luke starts with Jesus appearing in the temple 
and preaching a sermon in which he, he reads the text of Isaiah the prophet and exegeting it, applies it to himself. You'll see, he says, this text is about me. Look at uh, Luke chapter 4 at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of Jubilee. We'll come back to that. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Uh, Now, this is important because Jesus here is announcing, The year of Jubilee begins with me. The year of Jubilee, remember, was this this once every 50 year celebration in the story of the Jewish people where all debts were forgiven. I've told you, we don't have anything equivalent to this in modern day society to compare it to. In the 50th year, if you had loaned anything out, it was to be returned to you. If you had sold property because you were so indebted you couldn't afford to hold on to it, the property came back to you. If you owed anybody money, it was just canceled. The year of Jubilee was a year of saying, we as God's people are a family and we will not hold debts against each other. This is why Jesus can pick up on the image of releasing debts when he talks about forgiveness. He teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And they knew exactly what that was about. That was about Jubilee. There is a a set year every 50 years where everything is wiped clean. The slate is wiped clean. All debts are canceled and everything is restored back to where it belongs. If anyone has been enslaved because they were so indebted they had to work it off, it's canceled. Everybody is set free again. Jesus begins his public ministry in the Gospel of Luke by stepping up, reading this in Isaiah and saying, yeah, you know that, that celebration that normally happens every, year, every 50 years? Now it starts with me. Because I am the Messiah who came to bring the cancellation of debt and the freedom of God's people. I am the Messiah who came to set God's people free. The ministry of Jesus is not about binding people to laws because they're reigned over by an angry God. The ministry of Jesus is about setting people free so that they can live in God's love and release God's world to a Uh, release God's love to a world that is starving for it. Jesus' opening sermon is a radical one. It's the act of saying, I'm here and now the party begins. It's actually very similar to what John does when he announces that Jesus turned, he shows that Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. With Jesus, the party begins. And that's how Luke starts his telling of the story of Jesus that he has 
researched in such detail. I think this was Luke saying, hey, I found the real God, and it's not hotel coffee God. I found the real God, and it is not the angry, judgmental, uh, condemning God of the Pharisees. You'll see how Luke records Jesus' arguments with the Pharisees all through his life and ministry. Luke says it's not that God. It's the God who walked the earth in human form, Jesus of Nazareth, God and man. And as he walked the earth, he came to set people free, not to bind them with guilt. If you've grown up in a church experience that bound you with guilt, that shamed you and made you feel bad about yourself, that is not the real thing. That's hotel coffee church. Toss it out. Jesus came to make us a church that lives in his love by grace that releases forgiveness to those who have wronged us and anticipate in return, God sets us free from our debts. Forgive them, forgive them their debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus begins his ministry by saying, Jubilee begins with me. And that's where Luke launches into his story. Now watch how the people of Nazareth reply. This is his hometown. This is the people who grow up with him. This is the people who know him best. The hardest ministry you will do in your life is ministry to your own family. It is far easier to minister to complete strangers than people who have known you your whole life uh, because they remember. This is in verse 22. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. They've, they've already heard that he's working miracles. Let's see it again. Do it for us because we know you and I bet you can't. Truly I tell you, he continued, uh, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Thousand years before Jesus, Elijah was this prophet, maybe the most famous prophet in the Hebrew scriptures, incredibly powerful, stopped it from reigning for three years, right? It worked incredible miracles. And, and in Elijah's time, there were many widows in Israel. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, didn't rain for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land because the crops couldn't grow. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, any of the widows in Israel, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. In other words, he wasn't sent to insiders. He was sent to outsiders. All of God's people are suffering. The insiders are having a hard time. And the great prophet is not sent to the insiders. He's sent to the outsiders. Luke is setting the stage for what Jesus is going to do in his ministry. Remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, the big controversy is what to do with non-Jewish people who are accepting the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. What are we going to do with outsiders who are all of a sudden becoming insiders? And the great resolution in Acts 15 is the gospel is for the whole world. It's not just for insiders. It's especially for outsiders. Insiders don't recognize God when he stands in front of them. They're very churchy. They're very religious. They know all the rules. But Nazareth didn't accept God when he stood in front of them. 
And, and Luke's message here, the, the words of Jesus are, hey, remember, Elijah didn't go to insiders. He went to outsiders. So what do you think the Messiah is going to do? Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent to a widow far away. And there were many in Israel with leprosy, a skin disease, in the time of Elisha, which was the student of Elijah, uh, Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman, a Syrian. Again, an outsider, somebody from another country. The, the great prophets weren't working on the insiders, they were working on the outsiders. So here you are, Nazareth, rejecting the Messiah when he stands among you, because you remember when he was a kid playing Frisbee out in the street. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. Now, that's quite a first sermon, right? When you first graduate from seminary and you preach your first sermon, you're worried that people might not like it. You rarely get worked up to the point that you're afraid they're going to toss you off a cliff. But that was Jesus' first sermon. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. They couldn't accept God because they were used to hotel coffee God. And the real thing was just too different from them. And you may have grown up in a world like that. You may have grown up in a world where hotel coffee God was all there was. And, and some people embraced it because they liked the legalism. They liked the fact that they got to be insiders. And if God stood in front of them, they wouldn't recognize him. And there are people who grew up with hotel coffee God, and now they've spit him out and run away from him because they think if that's God, I don't want any part of it. A lot of us haven't quite figured out who God is yet. And it's especially the insiders. Uh, you know that uh, we have a pantry here at Real Life. And the backstory is, I started volunteering at pantries. I really liked it. During the pandemic, I did it every week because it was something that was essential. It remained open. And I, I became friends with somebody who had started a pantry. And, um, uh, you know, there was a, a team of volunteers who were there every week to give out food. And it, as it happened, I was the only pastor volunteering. And, and the, the guy who had started the pantry, a friend of mine, said, you know, Jim, I invite other pastors to come and help, I, I can't get them to show up. Couldn't get pastors to show up at pantries to give out groceries. And I, and I have the sense that's because there's some insiders who have settled for a God that's not the real thing. And I think a lot of us would be shocked if we ran into him. But there are other people who, who get God right, who see God for who he is. And some of them see the real thing and they're afraid of it. Uh, I remember um, when I worked with students in a church, when I was younger and worked with the youth group, there was a, a mom of one of the kids in my youth group. And this, this, this young man in my youth group decided he wanted to be a pastor when he grew up. He was planning to be a pastor. And his mom came to me and said, you need to tell him not to become a pastor. She's saying this to a pastor. She goes, you need to tell him not to become a pastor because they don't get paid very well, she said to me. She said, they don't get paid very well, and they want to go off and become missionaries in Africa. They, they, they go and they work with the homeless. You need to tell him not to do that because that won't be good for him. See, 
I think she understood Jesus better than a lot of pastors do. Because she understood the call of Jesus on people's lives. If, if we decide to follow Jesus, we're not living for normalcy. We're not living for comfort and security. We're certainly not living for wealth. We're living to spread God's love in the world. And that is our purpose. That's what we're here for. The purpose of real life church is to lead people to Jesus and to be a community of grace with a God-sized vision for every generation. That means we're not living for the things the world chases after. I think she got it better than a lot of insiders do, and she didn't want anything to do with it. But I've seen other people who understood it, and they embraced it. I remember this young couple who joined our, our church out in Hawaii when I was an associate pastor out there, and they were new to the church, and they, they had not been immersed in the world of Christianity. It was just kind of a new thing to them. And they dove in, and they discovered Jesus, who was the real thing, and they fell in love with him. And they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they took it all so seriously that one day they announced, we're giving up everything we have, we're going to sell all our belongings, and we're going to move to Bangladesh and work in an orphanage. And the people around them, even people at church were like, hold on a minute, are you sure about that? And they said, isn't that what we've been talking about all along? And sure enough, they did it. And they moved off and they lived in Bangladesh for years. And they cared for the poor there. And they worked in an orphanage there. And they had, a, they had a phenomenal ministry because they gave everything up to follow Jesus. They discovered Jesus who is the real thing. And if you've grown up with hotel coffee Jesus, you may have gotten inoculated against the real thing. You may have settled something that's so much less than the real thing that the real thing will shock you when you get your hands on it. But that's exactly what Jesus wants. Jesus wants we who have settled into a self-righteous religious faith to be broken of it because he created us, created us to be people of grace, living lives of love. He wants us who have, who have been burned by the church and burned by a self-righteous false presentation of God to discover the real thing. And to fall in love with him. And to give our lives to him. That's what happened to Luke. And Luke is writing to convince us that that's the best thing ever. As we dive into our studies of Luke in this season, we're going to be invited to move from whatever false and limited impressions of Jesus we've gotten to embracing the real thing. I remember uh, a few years ago, I was talking to a, a college student. And um, he found out I was a Christian, and he just kind of lit into me about uh, how much he didn't like Christianity. He didn't insult me personally, but he clearly didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And he talked about how hypocritical Christians were and how bad the church had been. He talked about all the sex abuse cases of the priests and all the terrible things that had happened. And I, I, sort of, I was sort of blindsided, and I sort of listened for a while. And then I said, um, okay, so um, oh, and he said, so I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God at all. And I said, oh, um, okay. Um, and I, maybe just by God's grace, uh, this came to mind. I didn't, I didn't argue with him. I said, um, okay, so tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, you've rejected a, a picture of God. There's, there's this God picture in your mind. And you say, That's, I reject that. Describe that God to me, the one that you've rejected. 
And he said, uh, oh, well, it's an angry, judgmental, self-righteous God that just wants to send people to hell and uh, doesn't care about people's suffering and doesn't care about people who uh, li live in different parts of the world and aren't Christian. It's a mean God. And he went on like that for a while. And when he was done, I think he was bracing for an argument. And I said, uh, yeah, I agree. I don't believe in that God either. I reject that God with you. And you could tell he just wasn't sure what to do with that because he thought we were going to go head to head and I did nothing but agree with him. Because what he was telling me was, I hate hotel coffee. And I hate hotel coffee too. I hate the hotel coffee Jesus that runs through the American culture and turns people off. Because people get an angry, politicized, judgmental vision of God and say, I don't want that. I don't want that either. That's not the real thing. And Luke knows that's not the real thing. Luke found the real thing. And he's going to show him to us. That's what's coming in the weeks and months to come. Let's pray. Jesus, heal those visions of you that we've gotten that are wrong. Heal those visions of you that do nothing but scare us and make us feel guilty. And set us free to live in your love and for your love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.